Well, this morning, I want us to be able to get back to the book of uh, Samuel. Sorry. And uh, we're going to talk this morning about something that's kind of a big deal. And it's this. Talking about being tired of waiting. Everybody likes to wait, right? I'll tell you what. One of the joys of living in St. Peter, Minnesota, I have to say, is when I have to get the plates renewed for my car and I'm able to go to the county building and do it in a very quick manner. I mean, the other day I went and they were busy. There were two other people there before me. Now, for some of you, you're like, okay, so what? If you've ever lived in a big city and you have to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles, pack a lunch because you're going to be there a while. It takes time, you know. You pick your thing that says, you know, pick your number you're serving, your number says 84, and you look at the thing, it says now serving 17. Yes, it's painful, but it's true. It's true. It's hard to wait, isn't it? Well, we're going to talk about this a little bit this morning. I'm going to ask you, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's Bibles in your pew, and also I'll have all the Scripture up on the screen as we go along this morning. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Samuel, so I need to take a moment and and do a little review. You know, it's like the new season of of a TV show, you know, previously on. So, remember that God chose Saul to be king of Israel. Israel wanted a king. God gave him a king. Samuel was like, you don't want to do this, but... They said, we know what we're doing. Then after Saul became king, Israel was attacked by the Ammonites, and God brought them victory. And the people wanted to give all the glory to Saul, their new king, who brought them victory. And Saul was like, no, no, we got to give it to God. And then Samuel takes a little time here. Remember, I'll, I'll use a little different vernacular, but it's close to what he said. Samuel said, sit down, shut up, and listen to what God has done for you. So Samuel lays out all these things that God has done. And Israel finally has their eyes opened to the fact that they were wrong to ask God for a king because God already was their king. But God says, or Samuel says, but all right, all right, okay, I realize you messed up everything else. But realize this, God is a God of second chances and he's going to give you another, a second chance here. Even though you've made wrong choices, even though you've sinned. Even though you've rejected God, God will bless you if, if you seek him and you serve him. And Samuel gives them this warning, and it says this in chapter 12. It says, be sure to fear the Lord and sincerely worship him. Think of all the wonderful things he has done for you, but if you continue to sin, you and your king will be destroyed. So that's kind of where we're at right now, okay, in the, in the story in, in 1 Samuel. So there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to take some notes this morning. And my first thought, my first point this morning is this idea of a standing army. Look what it says at the beginning of chapter 13. And this is, this is kind of a big section of Scripture, but um, we need to read this whole section to understand. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. 
the other thousand went with Saul's son, Jonathan, to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of Philistines at Geba. The news spread quickly among the Philistines that Israel was in revolt. So Saul sounded the call to arms throughout Israel. He announced that the Philistine garrison at Geba had been destroyed, and he warned the people that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army mobilized again and met Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and as many warriors as the grains of sand along the seashore. In other words, a lot of people. They camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw the vast number of enemy troops, they lost their nerve entirely and tried to hide in caves, holes, rocks, tombs, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Okay, so I don't want us to get hung up on the names of the places and everything. That's not really the important part of what I want to talk about today. Saul had been king of Israel for about two years now. Now, remember shortly after Saul became king, do you remember that the uh, Ammonites attacked Israel and they didn't have an army? Please shake your head yes that you remember. Good. Um, And so what did Saul have to do? He went around and sent word and he had to quickly raise this army to fight them. And that was the, the, the battle that I was talking about before we looked at this passage. So now Saul says, well, we need to have a standing army. That doesn't mean an army that's not allowed to sit down. What that means is an army of people who are always in service to the king, that are always ready to go at a moment's notice. So he creates a standing army in case they have a problem, but his son Jonathan, who this is the first time we hear about him, decides to attack the Philistines. And that's not really the point of the standing army, but now it's created a problem. They had this encounter with the Philistines of Geba, and they were pushed eastward from where they were eventually. And Saul meets up with them, and they wait for Samuel to arrive. And as we're going to see here, Samuel told Saul, you know, you need to wait for me because I'll come and we'll make sacrifi- I'll make sacrifices to the Lord before you guys go into battle. So... This is where Saul makes a foolish, foolish act. So, continuing on, starting in verse 8, it says this. It says, Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier. But Samuel didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, bring me burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcome him, but Samuel says, what is this that you've done? And Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So, So I said... The Philistines are ready to march against us, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. 
So I felt obliged to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have disobeyed the command of the Lord, your God. Now listen to this. Had you obeyed, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your dynasty must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already chosen him to be king over his people. For you have not obeyed the Lord's command. Saul then left Gilgal and went on his way. But the rest of the troops went with Saul. I'm sorry, Samuel left Gilgal. The rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. And when Saul counted the men who were still with him, he found only 600 left. How big was his standing army? Do you remember? 3,000? Now, all the men he recruited beyond that, he's got 600 left. So what happened here? Saul felt like he couldn't wait any longer. Samuel said he'd be here in seven days. Well, is that seven days in the morning of the seventh day? Is that seven days in the evening of the seventh day? The seventh day arrived, Samuel wasn't there. So what does Saul do? Saul starts to do the sacrifices. And did you catch what it said? It said that while he was finishing the sacrifices, in other words, if he would have just waited a little bit longer, what Saul did is he took on the role of the priest and made these sacrifices. This was not allowed, what Saul was doing here. In fact, it was against Jewish law. But, you know, it seems that Saul's motivation was genuine, doesn't it? Oh, we had to go into battle. My guys were scared. We needed God's favor. I don't think there was any malice on Saul's part. He was just an impatient idiot, right? Look what it says in verse 12 again. It says, Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Here's an interesting question. Did Saul need to make burnt offerings to have the Lord's favor? No, of course not. In other words, would God have abandoned them if there were no burnt offerings made? Of course not. And also, did the burnt offerings require God to grant his favor? Did God go, okay, now they made the burnt offerings, okay, now I've got to be with them? Of course not. Doesn't this sound a little familiar? Do you remember back early in the book of 1 Samuel when Israel was going to fight against the Philistines and they got their tails whooped? Do you remember what Israel did? They said, oh, let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant. We'll bring out the Ark of the Covenant, and then God will be with us, and then everything will be great. So they did, and then what happened? Well, they got beat even worse. The Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest's boys died, and then the high priest himself died, right? Didn't come out the way they planned. It's hard to believe as you look at this, you go, wait a minute, you guys are making the same stupid mistakes again. So Saul arri or Samuel arrives, and he rebukes Saul. Basically, what did you do, Saul? Where is your brain? You have acted foolishly. Samuel says that Saul's dynasty is going to end with him. Now, this may seem, seem harsh, but Saul had violated the laws of Moses, which is obviously a big no-no. Saul couldn't wait. Saul didn't trust God. 
A lot of times when we wait and we become impatient, it's because we don't want to wait anymore, right? Patience is such a hard thing to have. Patience is just a difficult thing to hold on to. Saul had these reasons for wanting to go ahead and do the offerings. Saul was kind of freaking out, wasn't he? He was freaking out because he was losing troops. He was freaking out because he was uh, having all, this, all these uh, guys running and hiding. That's not really good, is it? That's not a really, really good thing. And I'm sorry, give me a second. I lost a page. There we go. Sorry. And he had not obeyed Samuel in the process. Now, you have to think about this. What was Saul going through? He saw his army dwindle in size. Morale was terrible, and morale is bad. Fear is a terrible thing for an army. His men were terrified. And it's like Saul was like, Samuel's got to get his, his tail here because, God, don't you see what's going on here? Everything's falling apart. Don't you see? It sounds a little familiar to me when I, when I think about um, when Jesus was on the boat with his disciples and a storm brewed up and the waves were really bad and the wind was really bad. And what was Jesus doing? He was sleeping in the front of the boat. And his disciples woke him up and what they say? They said, Jesus, we're going to die here. Don't you care? What a, uh, you know, if they would have taken two minutes to think about that statement before they said it, okay, do you care? Of course you care. Are we going to die here? No, you're not going to die. That's Jesus. How are you going to die? You guys aren't going to sink. The boat's not going to sink. And Jesus says, where's your faith? And that's a challenge sometimes with patience. And this is tough, and maybe we don't want to admit this, but sometimes we have a hard time waiting because our faith can dwindle. Whenever any of us go through difficult times, we may ask the Lord, how long? How long will I have to endure this? In the Bible, there are over 40 passages in which God's people are crying out to him, how long do we have to wait, Lord? How long will we have to suffer? How long will we have to wait to see you move? How long must we wait on the Lord? You know, as the, the great philosopher Tom Petty once said, the waiting is the hardest part, right? But look at what it says in Psalm 37. It says this. It says, rest in the Lord and patiently wait for him. And then two verses later it says, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Waiting on the Lord is a big thing, isn't it? Andrew Murray said this. He said, the purpose of the waiting is to teach us our absolute dependence upon God's mighty working and to make us in perfect patience place ourselves at his disposal. So we look at Psalms, and there's a lot more passages in Scripture I could show you, and we look at this quote from Andrew Murray, and what do we see here? We understand that there's a purpose behind waiting on God, isn't there? Even though we don't like it, there are reasons. 
Now this morning I want to point out four reasons why God makes us wait. Now, hear me, there's probably a lot more than four, but there's four that I want to point out this morning, if I can. Four major reasons God makes us wait. And the first one is this. It reveals our true motives. You see, here's the truth. Waiting can bring out the best and the worst in people. The longer we wait, the more agitated we may become. The truth of the matter is people who don't have good motives won't wait long because they're not interested in the commitment it takes to see something through. And sometimes I feel that when we don't wait, maybe our motives are not trusting God or having faith in God, but our motives is selfishness. When Saul was watching his army dwindle, when he was watching his men hide in fear, when he was literally watching men run away, it goes on in this passage to say that some of Saul's men went across the Jordan River so that they'd be safer on the other side. When Saul was watching all this, and he's like, okay, where's Samuel? Okay, where's Samuel? All the, what, what, was Saul thinking, God's in control? Was, was he thinking that at that moment? He was thinking, I got to get God involved, is what he was thinking, right? Duh. God was already there. God's already in control. You see, sometimes we act because we are just seeing what's in front of our eyes, but we're not seeing or trusting that God is doing something. Here's the second idea. Waiting builds patience in our lives. It builds patience. Patience in waiting for small things leads to having patience in bigger things. We trust God to come through on small things. We trust God to come through on big things. And if we can't wait for God to do a small thing, we certainly can't wait for God to do something bigger. How many have ever felt like they've been waiting on God for a long time for something? Come on, admit it. Yes, most of us have. That's hard, isn't it? Like, okay, God, any time now, that would be good. But the truth is, friends, sometimes our perspective is usually wrong. What do I mean by this? Is that we think God needs to act on something, but God knows exactly what he's doing. You see, sometimes we think the bigger things in our life are our finances and possessions. and Well, God thinks influencing and changing people is much more important. Silly God, huh? Sometimes the things that we think in our life are a travesty, and I don't mean to, to belittle any of the things that we experience in life, but the, sometimes there are things that we experience in life that we think are just overwhelming, and I can't take it, and God's going to make a change. And God's saying, I don't know that I need to make a change right now because you need to take a step back and realize this is nearly not as big a deal as you're making it. It builds patience in our lives and it opens our eyes to see what is really important. I find that people who have patience are people who have a good perspective of things. I always marvel at, and I marveled at this a ton, especially when I was a teenager, uh, watching baseball, 
professional baseball and your team loses a game and it's a close one or maybe you lost in extra innings or maybe the, the, the manager brought in a particular pitcher and you're going, why are you bringing him in now? And the guy blows it and your team loses the game. And I'd be all frustrated and upset and then I'd see the interview after the game and the manager would be like, well, yeah, it's just one game, you know, that's why we play 162. And I'm sitting there going, but what if we lose the title by one game? What if we miss the playoffs by one game? The manager's perspective was much bigger, wasn't it? It was much different than mine. We need to have God's perspective on things except just our own. We all have trials we face. We all have difficulties we face. We all have challenges we face. God sees the bigger picture. Here's the third thing waiting does. Waiting transforms our character. In other words, God uses waiting to break us down and reshape us and remold us. That's so much fun, isn't it? No. Waiting has a way of rubbing off the rough edges in our lives. Look at Moses, for example. When Moses left Egypt and went into the desert, he was there for 40 years before God came to him. 40 years. God was working on him that whole time, though. God used this time of waiting to transform Moses' character so that he could say, Moses, I want you to go back and free my people. God used those 40 years to prepare Moses for that job. When Moses was young, he was pretty brash. He was impatient. He was reactionary. He killed a man and hid the body, and then he ran for his life. But when he was given the chance, he did things God's way and in God's time. And the only way he was able to do that is because of those 40 years in the wilderness that God was working on him. Waiting transforms my character. Most of you who know me know I'm a second career pastor. I didn't get into the ministry until I was in my 30s. And I always said, God, why, why, why'd you wait so long to call me to ministry? Why don't you call me when I was 18? Well, I know now I never would have listened when I was 18. I wasn't ready to hear, Greg, I want you to serve me in ministry. I wasn't ready to hear that at 18 years old. I wasn't ready to hear it at 20. I wasn't ready to hear it at 22. But when time was right, God placed a call in my life. And I believe that God used those years of waiting to prepare me for that moment. God's wait, God uses waiting to transform our character. Here's the fourth idea. Waiting builds intimacy and dependency on God. Intimacy and dependency on God. The great men and women of the Bible all had one thing in common. They were all people who learned their success for life in life was directly proportionate to their dependency upon God. We see this time and time and time again in Scripture. For them, a relationship with God wasn't a get-rich-quick scheme. For them, it was a matter of life and death. The relationship of God with God was everything. And the good news is that God never asks us to wait without him. This is something really cool, and I want you to hear this. 
the great characters of the Bible went through difficulties of life with God. And in the end, they enjoyed the process with God and the promise of God. I've always believed God is just as interested in the journey as he is in the destination. If this were true, then the Bible would only be filled with all the feel-good moments, right? Why do we see so many stories of tragedy in Scripture? Because it teaches us the value of walking with God. The Bible contains good and bad and ugly times of waiting and waiting on God. Friends, we may not always understand why we have to wait, but the good news is that God never asks us to wait without him. Saul missed this, didn't he? He was like, oh, I got to get God's favor here. I got to get God's favor. He didn't understand, and he didn't recognize, and he didn't realize that God was with him. Even though Samuel wasn't, God was with him. He never asks us to wait without him. What do we do while we wait? We continue to seek God. We continue to grow in intimacy with God. Because God's timing is always perfect. Do you believe that? If you truly believe that, in the midst of whatever's going on around you, in the midst of whatever you see, we have to be able to have the faith to say, God, your timing is everything. Your timing is everything for us. God's timing is perfect. I want to show you another scripture passage. It says this in the book of Galatians. It says, When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. We know Jesus came to die for us, that we can spend eternity with the God of the universe. But he came as Paul says in Galatians, at just the right time, when the time was right. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was saying, when, Lord, when? When are you going to send us a Messiah to deliver us? When did God send Jesus? At just the right time. He sent him at the perfect time. Now, why was it the perfect time? Because it says it was the perfect time. Do I know all the reasons why? No. That's why we have faith, right? In a, in a little bit here, we're going to come to the communion table. But I want us to take a little time to reflect on that, that God's timing is perfect, and in God's timing, Christ came right when he needed to. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to sing a, a couple songs together. Just prepare our hearts for coming to the communion table and recognizing and celebrating our Savior Jesus Christ.